Are you attending Shop Talk? If you are, I hope that you're ready for the AI-driven future of commerce. If not, you can get ready by joining us and our friends from IM Digital, a leading retail experience agency, to learn about the future of commerce. You can join their March 18th event taking place at Shop Talk exclusively with your invite from Future Commerce. Find out more today at events.imdigital.com. Today on Visions. They started from a position of, I'm going to starve for my art. I believe in what I'm, what I'm doing so much. Um, but it's probably come from a place where, from a product innovation standpoint, or whatever service or product they're selling, they've seen a gap in the market and they're, they're filling it. I think art is something that I would rather companies, specifically founders who are perhaps at an earlier stage and they're still understanding who their customer is and how their brand can grow, maybe borrow the principles of what it is to be an artist rather than trying to see yourself as one. Welcome to Visions. Visions is an annual audiovisual trends report that covers the changes in culture and commerce. This series is meant to be a companion guide to our 100-page report. Download and follow along at visions.report. Episode 3, Romanticism. Hi, I'm Philip. Our founders, artists and brands a new canvas? Today on Visions, we explore one of our eight themes of the report, Romanticism. What is brand romanticism? Romanticism is the very idea that something that exists in the world is itself pleasing. The idea that a product or a company or mission does not directly service you and you would never be a customer, but yet you derive pleasure from its mere existence. This is a new kind of romanticism. The things that we want to exist, but we are not the primary audience. It is beautiful to behold, but not worthy enough for us to spend money to be held. On today's episode, we go to a live discussion at the Vision Summit in West Palm Beach, Florida, and we examine how brands have become a new form of art, how online stores are the new galleries, and how a coming age will document this moment in a museum of brand. We're actually going to talk a little bit about uh, something that we've coined as a term is sort of brand romanticism, or this idea that we live in an era that's seen such an amazing proliferation of brand. There's more choice than ever before. And in many ways, we've actually even heard some conversation in, in all of our echo chambers about things like, oh, brands are, are a canvas and the products are these new pieces of art that are being brought to the world and we're sort of beholding them as art. But we all know that we have to engage in commerce. Uh, and so I thought maybe we could sort of start there. Um, are, you know, are brands, uh, artists and our products, their canvas? Michael Miraflor, Chief Brand Officer at Hannah Gray VC. We are a pre-seed and seed stage venture firm investing in founders who are looking to change the everyday behaviors of consumers. Some brands, you know, they have artistic leads. They have a more creative bent. The reason that they exist is in part to make their mark on culture, right, as well as to serve the consumer. 
by creating beautiful products. But I think that some brands kind of trick themselves into thinking that when at the end of the day, they might be selling commodity product and they might be focusing a bit too much on the I want to be thought about in the same vein as art when at the end of the day, you know, it's really their job to do commerce. Do you think that it's sort of a problematic conflation of sort of meeting the consumer need and desire, especially like in the food space, right? There's a lot of like luxurification of common foods, right? We're certainly, we've come through that era in, in a big way. What is the role that brand is playing and, and maybe how we, let's take it from our perspective, have we romanticized brand beyond what is due to it? I'm Grace Clark, and I run a growth marketing consultancy, and I focus on supporting brands either at the go-to-market stage or as they are graduating toward future fundraises. First and foremost, I think brands can be seen more as art patrons rather than artists themselves or commodifying art simply for a marketing campaign. And I think we have some really great luxury examples, but also more modern. So if anyone's ever seen a BMW art car, that's been a project of theirs for over 25 years now. And I think we can, everyone knows Google Doodle. That was what, 1998 yeah. when that started. So there are certain ways that brands that are both product-based and consumer-based can have a point of view on art. And the bigger they are, the bigger responsibility, I'd argue, a brand has to support art or continue the conversation around what art is, not simply to acquire customers. But on the direct-to-consumer side, Something I'm seeing is brands actually integrating art and artful thinking into the creation of their brand experience. And to me, it's not in a way to get credit. I think the best example we can see right now is in Gia, which is a non-alcoholic spirit. Mm. And that art has been a complete element of the brand experience in its own. I mean, even recently, the founder, Melanie Masterin, created a house and that's where the Gia office will be, but is it, it's an expression of what the brand actually mm. is. That house is full of very legitimate art, both more contemporary and more modern, all, all the way down to what's hanging on the wall and the salt and pepper shakers that are used in the kitchen. So I think brands have an opportunity to support art and not delude themselves into thinking that they are the creators of product. I think maybe if you talk to someone who's working at Apple and product design, you might get a completely different answer though, because there is so much humanity involved in certain products. Would a retailer ever consider themselves to be a curator of art? If brand is some sort of an artist and products are, are their output, would a retailer ever even have or ever engage in that kind of a conversation? Or have we sort of lost our way in, in our little corner of the, the world? I'm Maya Knights. I'm an author, consultant and publisher of Retail Technology Magazine in the UK. I think they would engage in the conversation, but not necessarily in the way that they're thinking about it as art. I mean, hearing um, Michael and Grace answer uh, the questions that you put to them, I was thinking that brands have to make a conscious decision to get the balance right between form and function, style and substance. Um, if you've got a particularly commodified commoditized, excuse me, product, um, it might be that the brand decides to go for the subs go for the style and the and the and the funk the form over to try and differ as a form of differentiation. But I think you've got to stay authentic as well in that sense. I mean consumers are going to know if they're if you're dressing up something that's basic and adding a couple of zeros to it because you've romanticized it by using some kind of you know 
some art style to, mm. to, to style it. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important that brands understand where there might be adjacencies to their product. And to Grace's point, the example you gave is great because they understand um, the gear house. They understand even if they weren't making the product that they make, this is what we would do if we were making salt and pepper shakers. Mm. Their, their purpose runs deep in that sense. They understand mm. exactly what they need to be to a consumer, regardless of whether they're making art or a house or, or, powerful, or, or yeah. salt and pepper shakers. That's, to me, where the romanticised part of, of branding um, has value for the brands themselves. They need to un- unpack what that romanticism, what, what that love affair they're creating with consumers is and find a way of giving that back to them, reflecting that to them, um, just just commissioning some artists to do <laughs> a few pop-ups or, um, you know, to decorate your store is not enough. You need to think it through right from the product development innovation mm-hmm. point right through to the marketing. It has to be consistent, coherent, and true to the brand. And, and that way I think some brands are better curators of the culture that they inhabit than others. And some brands are more purposeful about that. Going back to Gia, again, I mean, they have curated this house and been able to communicate whatever emotional value that it, you know, delivers to the consumer in such a beautiful way. But it's also a way for them to tell their story about how they participate in that culture that they are projecting, right? And not all brands really have permission to do that. But when you do it in a right way, it, it lends so much credibility. Um, so that, you know, you can make an argument that the brand is not art, but the, 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 the brand is being an excellent curator of the culture that it is participating in. And I think that makes all the difference. Are you, are you, are you co-opting something that, that exists in culture uh, for marketing purposes or for promotional purposes? Or are you a participant? Are you helping to create are you helping to facilitate, um, you know, the ecosystem for which you are now sort of actively curating? We had a moment that I think is pivotal in the United States here in a, a case called Citizens United, which sort of personified and gave rights and speech rights to corporations. And not that we weren't already down that path quite a ways. In that case, it was around campaign funding. I Notice now more, maybe it's because I'm just aware of it and it's mere exposure bias, but I I seem to think that we are personifying brands more than we have in the past. We call call them people. Like we actually refer to them as people. We say they. Um, uh, These are corporations, right? Which at the end of the day need to make a profit, hopefully, eventually. Uh, They need to be self-sustaining and then they're they're found a customer and they're delivering a product at a sizable margin so that they can perpetuate but that's not how artists live. Yeah, if you, my wife's an artist. I know how artists live. Most artists are bivocational. Most artists do that for the passion. Having said all of that, could we be in an era where that's okay? Like, that's okay that a brand doesn't have to achieve some sort of self-sustainability breakout success. If it truly is art, it can be a passion project and nothing more. Grace, I'm curious what you think about that. Okay, what's coming to mind is a brand that I do and don't associate with art, and that's Coca-Cola mostly because the images that come to mind are some of their campaigns. And I remember growing up and seeing the Coca-Cola polar bears or seeing Mm -hmm. Coke murals. But when I think about 
Coke, I don't want or need or expect them to be an artistic sort of brand or creating a world for me. However, I do think as an enterprise company, I would imagine there's some responsibility there to at least support an artistic perspective. And as a brand that's able to incubate other brands, just considering the capital that that company has, that is where I feel like innovation can happen. If you have the right people inside that company where they can basically use that infrastructure as a way to incubate another company inside of it. And that can be a way to build out a brand that has an artful spirit while you're using the resources of a company that doesn't have that responsibility, at least from the public. You're a, a collector of art. I'd like to think that. Yeah. Rookie uh, collector. Yeah. I perceive, based on Twitter alone and nothing else. Well, the marketing is working. <laughs> I perceive that uh, that you know something about art or that you, uh, you have a, a particular special affinity for it. What's your take on this idea of starving artists, brand creators? Does that give us more cause to think of brands as art? I would love to hear more conversations with founders that saw their life's work going into whatever product that they're developing in more of a way of a uh, starving artist than focusing on what you just said, capital outcomes, right? It seems like everyone who talks passionately about what they're working on automatically goes from zero to 100, talking about getting venture-backed and shooting for a big exit, which is totally fine. I mean, sure. that is that would be an amazing outcome, but um, I would love to see the story of uh, more founders uh, working hard on their projects, regardless of that outcome. Um, but maybe that's just something that is not allowed to be spoken of out loud. Like there is a certain pride in saying, you know, um, this person or that person, or I myself am, am a starving artist, right? It, 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 uh, the connotation is not, uh, it's not, uh, it's not entirely negative, uh, even though at face value, starving artist, starving artist, right? I think if a founder really doesn't care if the brand stays small or regional or if it goes to the moon, they're maybe not allowed to talk about the former as much as the latter because that signals to the marketplace that they might not be as serious mm. about their project as as they might be. It's just they know that it can exist in the market and in culture without it having to you know, be so ambitious as to like think that you need to put uh, eventual IPO in slide 10 of your fundraising deck, right? I'm not sure if this if this gets to the crux of your question, but um, um, I, I love it when I hear of five to $15 million companies doing well, treating their employees right, uh, and growing to the point where they have a community that loves them. Um, and if they wanted to, they can just keep that going. Yeah, because they've, they, they started from a position of, I'm going to starve for my art. I believe in what I'm what I'm doing so much. Um, but it's probably come from a place where, from a product innovation standpoint, or whatever service or product they're selling, they've seen a gap in the market and they're, they're filling it. So I think, again, I would caution talking about brands as art when people will start to think about art for art's sake. Mm. Brands have to make money. Um, but to Michael's point, they don't 
always have to be aiming to IPO. I think it, 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 we have to get to a stage where it's it's good enough for the person, the founder, to feel, yes, I have a $15 million bus- a year business. This is where I want to be. If someone wants to come and buy me, fine. If someone, you know, but I'm not going to necessarily try and diversify or dilute my purpose mm-hmm. just to keep growing. It would be so refreshing to hear of companies like that. But I think we live in a world, particularly increasingly globalised world, where I can't believe t- two years it, into a pandemic, we're still expecting double-digit growth from the likes of Amazon. We're still expecting... There's this. We live in this world, I think, where it's very difficult to reconcile art as part of a commercial um, outcome when we we see rising stars and we just expect them to keep growing. Right. So the problem's capitalism. Sorry. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was going to poke that bear a little bit by saying that I think art is something that I would rather companies, specifically founders who are perhaps at an earlier stage and they're still understanding who their customer is and how their brand can grow, maybe borrow the principles of what it is to be an artist rather than trying to see yourself as one. There's probably some risk, like Michael pointed out, in terms of signaling outwardly that you truly think about your product as art that might take away from the seriousness or the viability of the product. And I think that might sow some lack of confidence, especially if you're about to embark on a fundraise or you have six months of runway. Maybe don't say that publicly. So instead, I think what comes up for me is how important it is to hang on to what it is to be creative and understand the principles of art and what the process is in terms of what the eventual output could be. I remember being five and I wonder if everyone has had this experience where the interest in art as a practice gets trained out of us. When we're five or six, maybe we, if we go to a school that we're lucky enough has an art program, we participate in that. But Mm. slowly we start to acquire more methodical skills or tangible skills. And being an artist and having that curiosity without a desired outcome or without a utility is something that isn't really nurtured once we get to a certain age, at least in this country, at least in my life. So Hmm. creativity and play with no purpose is not something that feels like even has a place always in my work. I have to be careful about it. And so much so that part of what I, what I did when I was building a team at my most recent position was institute no keyboards outings where we weren't allowed to do any work and we had to make something with our hands because I so badly wanted to protect the part of their brains and spirits that got them to my team in the first place. Mm -hmm. And if we don't protect that, it might not be something that we can easily prioritize. Yeah. I think if you tell, if you talk to a brand, an up and coming brand, and you put the word starving with artists, they'd be like, oh, do you see what I mean? It's, it's, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a certain, pride Mm. in being a starving artist but if you're going into business to sell stuff to people and the other thing the other distinction I think that that occurred to me as as, as Grace was just answering your question is that artists have to be true to themselves Mm. I think a brand has to be true to its customers it has to have a really fashion brands for example we've always thought that they have a muse they the the designer has a muse in their head that they're designing for and I think a a brand, whether you're doing a, a product or a service, even if it's a utility, utilitarian product, has to really design with that 
customer, that ideal best customer in mind, um, and then take and take that first principle and elevate it from there. And to Grace's point, maybe use the marketing um, to, 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 to elevate the, the, pro- the product, to elevate the brand experience. Mm-hmm. But you never get away from the fact that someone's got to buy this. It's, it's got to be kind of useful in the end. Leonardo da Vinci was the original content creator. Aside from being a prolific sculptor, inventor, and painter, he documented his work in writing for would-be students. He was an influencer, a content creator, in an age before TikTok and Instagram. In his treatise on painting, Leonardo describes in detail not only how to prepare a canvas for painting, but also how to paint on it. When Leonardo created the Mona Lisa, he didn't run down to the Blick Art Supply. There were no off-the-shelf pre-stretched canvas. There was no tub of gesso or tubes of vermilion. To be an artist in the time of Leonardo da Vinci, you had to vertically integrate. You had to start from literal scratch. But not all artists are da Vinci, and very few, if any, start from pigments and handwoven canvas today. Modern artists have Gamblin and Golden, and modern e-commerce artists have Shopware and Klevu and Yachtpo. In much the same way that Leonardo used the tools available to him at the time to create and to educate and inspire, today brand artists use the tools available to them to educate and inspire a new generation of entrepreneurs. We are, Grace, taught from a very young age to express ourselves from art. Like I, I, a crayon in the hands of a child, you know, it's process art, right? And you're learning motor skills, but the child's creating something out of nothing. Uh, there's hotel art, right? There's art in this house all over the place and of varying degrees of skill and quality that goes into it. Maybe part of this is like, let's flip the script. Maybe it's the customer's perception of why that thing exists in the world that is imposing this idea upon us. Uh, In our study, we found that the majority of the respondents of our survey said that they appreciate and even like love the idea of a brand more than they do around the ownership of the product. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about art specifically, some art can exist for no commercial reason or purpose maybe the consumer is ahead of where we all are on this panel and that maybe a brand can exist for no reason or purpose. I think brands can certainly be symbolic. To flip the script, as you say, consumers uh, associate brands with artistic attributes and that's why we romanticise them, I think. Um, And because it's symbolic, we attach the symbolism of buying this, whether it's... I'm buying a luxury brand because I can afford to and nobody else has got it or everybody's got it and I want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's coming from, you're right to say we need to flip the script when we're talking about brands as romanticism, I think, in that sense, thinking it through. Because we're the ones romanticizing them. We're the ones attaching value. And it's brands that can actually recognize that symbolism and take it and reflect it back to us to kind of endorse that we are we're right in engaging with the brand for the reasons that we think we're engaging with them that do the best. 
we're performing our identities a bit when we engage with any sort of brand or product, whether we're buying something because we stylistically feel really great about wearing it or we simply need it for function. We're still buying something because it creates some reality in our lives that we want to be true for ourselves. Mm. So there are lots of brands that I appreciate from that perspective, but I myself am not a customer of theirs and I still think that's okay. So I spend a ton of time on Reddit, both for entertainment purposes, also for work. And one of the top Reddits of the most hundred popular on any given day that is related to hobbies is gardening. I have no interest in making a garden myself. However, I spend time there partly because it helps me understand how other people are living out their own values. This podcast is brought to you by Shopware. Shopware is an e-commerce hub that allows you to offer relevant, compelling experiences for your consumers and your back office team. The open source core and the open commerce approach allows brands to build however they want. Turnkey, headless, PWA, or any combination thereof, thanks to the all sales channels welcome approach. Shopware creates the most engaging experiences imaginable from B2B and B2C to multi-store and guided shopping. And Shopware features a worldwide ecosystem of developers, agencies, and technology partners. Find out more at shopware.com FC. That's shopware.com slash FC. Oftentimes brands get mentioned that are interesting for me just as a market researcher, but I also want to understand how people are performing out who they want to be and what their hobbies are, how people talk about brands that they mention, why they debate the merits of particular topsoils. That's all just understanding how a consumer wants to live their life separate from how they want to make money. So that's necessarily an exploration of how someone feels romantically about their life. Anyone can go on TikTok right now and see multiple hashtags and sounds about romancing, romanticizing your own life, your own daily life and being your own main character. So brands are simply a part of that. And Michael and I have had conversations around this that we affix ourselves to certain products or brands because it helps us understand who we are. And it also helps us relate to other people in our own niche. It gives us this shorthand in this other language. We can find each other quickly. We can converse on Twitter with this other language. So that belonging is a huge part of brand identity for me. That like romanticism of art and gathering is really about social sharing. And it's not always a conscious exploration as well. It's like, you know, when I first started art collecting, quote unquote, uh, someone gave me a great piece of advice. Just explore with your eyes open and not overdoing the research. You will realize that you like what you like because that is a reflection of who you are as a person to this point. All your tastes and your values and other art that you've encountered, like when you find a piece that really speaks to you, it's going to be really difficult for you to describe it, but you know it's something that you will want to acquire and you'll feel good about waking up and seeing it on your wall, Mm. right? So it's a a bit of a conscious plus subconscious um, exploration. But Grace, I love what you just said, but it almost 
justifies the definition of certain types of brands as being art because, you know, um, cost and, you know, scarcity and desire aside, you might appreciate the craftsmanship and the objects that a brand produces. It might not be for you, but you could recognize it as something that uh, belongs to culture and speaks to a certain type of consumer and individual who uh, is motivated enough to actually purchase it, right? But you don't appreciate any less than someone who um, decides to, you know, deploy some of their capital to purchase that thing. Okay, this thought has been immortalized in a movie quote that I want to share with this group. So if anyone's ever seen the movie Zoolander, (laughs) there's a moment where Owen... What highbrow movie is this going to be? (laughs) Where Owen Wilson's character is playing a male model called Hansel and he wins an award. And in his thank you speech, he says, Stang, the music that he makes, I don't really listen to it, but the fact that he's making it, I appreciate that. And I think that is... So how I feel about certain brands. I I don't want a Land Rover and I never want to be part of that world. It doesn't represent who I want to be or the values that I want to be true in the world. I still appreciate the adherence and the consistency to that image and the endurance of that company over decades and decades and decades and the resurgence that it has and how it plays into that and, and sort of lets it fade and then revisits it. That to me is a masterclass in what it is to be a brand that has a strong perspective and a strong aesthetic and does not deviate from it. Yeah. Like my relationship with every high-end luxury timepiece company, like expensive watches, basically. Yeah. 99% of people who own a Rolex will never become deep sea divers in the same way that people who own Omegas will never go to the moon or people who own Brightlings will ever be a fighter pilot, Right. But those brands are so consistent about how they tell their stories um, and the craftsmanship behind each one of the pieces. I mean, you can't, if you do even a little bit of below surface level research, you understand the hundreds of hours that go into assembling any one of those timepieces. I mean, you can make an argument that, you know, these are pieces of art, right? And that's, you know, that's why consumer behavior, when it comes to the relationship with those objects, models more like art collecting than purchasing a suit or something that might be uh, of the same quality or same price point, right? So I think there there, there, there are definitely levels to this. So you can have these these amazing levels of craftsmanship, but when does a product become art in terms of it needs to be in a design museum? Or Mm. another trend that I see that kind of fits into this area is the circular economy. So particularly, it's, it's, it's very much to do with the amount huh. of artisanship yeah. that goes into a product. But the more artisan capability that you can say has gone into your product, the more longevity you might be able to give it. And I really think that what we're seeing with the circular economy, where people want to buy secondhand goods because they're a price point. So there might be, you might have a brand yeah. that you really aspire to, but only recently because you could um, acquire it secondhand, you're able to to buy into that. I think there's so many dynamics emerging in that sense that probably drag brands towards feeling that they should be more like art. But I think they have to be really clear on their purpose as a merchant and whether or not they have an artisanship or an artisanal story to tell. That's such a 
amazing point um, because it reminds me of last year's vision report that we did. Uh, we discovered that 81% uh, of our audience and survey respondents uh, consider during the purchase process, right, in, in their consideration of the purchase, they wonder to themselves what happens when they're done using that product. In other words, they consider the residual value of what it will be worth when I'm done with it. And that just that mere consideration changes the way that you value that piece because it might lead you to buy something, justify the purchasing of something higher quality because of this romantic idea that you can sell it some other time when you're done with it or someone else can make use of it. And I think that that in and of itself is this really novel idea that we're all, uh, that luxury has been, has, has uh, had uh, the benefit, has been the primary beneficiary of for so long because of the durability of the goods or the, you know, the artisanal quality. Uh, they've benefited that by just virtue of the, the types of goods they create. It's an entire industry trying to replicate that, I think, is, becomes problematic mm -hmm. over time is because not everything actually commercially can exist. This episode is brought to you by Clayvu. Clayvu captures e-commerce shoppers' intent and then leverages AI to create personalized search and discovery experiences that allow your brand to go beyond keywords typed into the search box. Clayvu's end-to-end search and discovery solution is easy to configure, optimize, and maintain for all major shopping platforms in just hours. Clayvu's proprietary technology is driving traffic and conversion and loyalty for over 3,000 leading global brands. Check them out today at Clayvu, that's K-L-E-V-U dot com. Visions is brought to you by Yakpo, an e-commerce marketing platform that helps online businesses win customers for life with interconnected solutions for reviews, SMS marketing, loyalty programs, and more. With Yachtpo, brands like Steve Madden, Brooklinen, Quip, and Love Wellness are able to create innovative experiences that boost customer loyalty and repeat purchases. Join Yachtpo in keeping commerce on the cutting edge by downloading the Visions Report today. Visit yachtpo.com visions. That's Y-O-T-P-O dot com visions. And so let's bring that back to this point where uh, this, you know, coming back to the the core idea is that there are there are places in this world where art is commercialized and sold. We have we have an analog for that in this world. You go to a gallery, you can go over to Worth Avenue right over here. It's five miles away, and you will you can dip in and out of uh, Laura Piana. And then you can go into a gallery and you can go into Hermes and you can go into a gallery. They are very intentionally sprinkled together. That world coexists. And so this idea that there is a venue for us to go and purchase art is very different from another venue that houses art, like museums, mm -hmm. and where we go to behold something. Uh, so let's kind of tease this out because I really wonder if the long tail of e-commerce and direct-to-consumer and this idea of like entrepreneurship and Shopify, the Shopifyification of everything, what we've done is inadvertently really just created a museum of brand of which most people will go to behold and almost nobody goes there to transact. That description you make, I immediately thought of Etsy. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, in the sense that you can spend hours scrolling Etsy and mm. walk away and not buy a thing. Um, but at the same time, I think Etsy as a marketplace has to make, has to 
perform commercially. It's got to work for it, for the merchants that use it. Um, I don't know if I'm fully answering your question or, or making a point that goes to the question. Um, well, you make me think of Depop. And oh, something yeah. that it, there are a few things that are really fascinating to me about Depop right now, especially in, in juxtaposition with their competitors. So let's talk about Depop and Poshmark. Poshmark has a larger average user base right now. However, Poshmark has paid to acquire more of their customers than Depop has. Depop's growing a little faster and Depop has 5% of their listings classified as art. And that continues to grow. Poshmark has nothing representing art. But when you go to Depop, like you mentioned, Laura Piana being next to a gallery, Depop is actually selling you objects that go into your home and objects that you wear. And I imagine that we'll start to see the category of art continue to increase. Mm. And when we think about what art really is, they're just people having the exact same behavior as someone walking down Worth Avenue, but perhaps they're a little bit younger or perhaps their purchasing power is a little bit smaller, but they still want to understand who they get to be through what they tend to buy. And the merchants there are real people. So the, the, platform itself is still viable while they're allowing people to buy different types of things on the same platform. So same reason we see urban outfitters having, you know, ballooning and then sort of a waxing and waning category of home products, but anthropology also in the same family, really well known for their homewares. So people, I think, want to nest and want to have an experience, an aesthetic experience through all the different touch points of their life, even if it's their home where people you know, with varying degrees of, of being public or not, whether they have people over, they still want that in their house. And I think about Michael and how he feels when he is looking for something that he wants in his home that other people may not see, but it just feels like an expression of who he is. Like, mm -hmm. is that, is the place that you bought it a brand? Is the artist that you support a brand in and of themselves? Do you think of this, if you imagine your house as a museum to you, do you think of it as all of the different brands and the people that are represented, the, the artists that you're patrons for? I mean, we can always debate the merits of all of these smaller brands that are launching this direct-to-consumer boom and whether or not those brands are actually viable. I really wonder what the conversations are like on the investor side, which is how viable is this really beautifully designed brand and how long can it last? We'll look at rolled up in a sort of brand-friendly Thrasio approach mm -hmm. where brands aren't just commodities. And if those brands close down after a certain period of time, will we have a, a literal museum of brand yeah. that mm -hmm. we can go see? Sort of like the, the basement of the Lou Ballin Center and the Cooper Union in New York, where we get to go look at what people interacted with. And there are some incredible archives in that particular museum. Swiss pharmaceutical advertising mm. from Herb Ballin and just an unbelievable archive of what it was to be a brand at certain eras. I would love to see a timeline of what brands looked like as we, this age group, started to become consumers who were shopping from like younger and younger companies. It all goes back to basics, right? And like time kind of tells the story of of the evolution of every brand. And there are only so many brands that are worth re-exploring after so many decades, right? So it all goes back to the quality and the, the purpose and maybe the craftsmanship, depending on what um, what we're talking about. Um, but I, I love, you know, seeing an early brawn razor or, or, or clock. And those, these are, these are, True. these are otherwise commodity goods, but they were just done with so much purpose and so much style and are timeless. 
right? I know we've been talking a lot about luxury because it's easy to make that one in one comparison to luxury and art. But um, I also think it's important to acknowledge that art, you know, popular art is having a moment right now. You mm-hmm. go to Art Basel Miami Beach and it's turned into like a circus mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. much. And, and you can walk into any fast fashion retailer and, you know, the estates of very, very popular artists like like Warhol and Herring and, uh, and, and, and Basquiat, like you can, you can buy a $15 t-shirt adorned with any one of their screen prints. Right. Um, and there's value to that because it helps younger people without a lot of disposable income to explore. But I think there is a delineation between the moment that we're living in where just art, especially art that has an that has historically had an interaction with pop culture. Right now, it's like the focus on the 80s with the yeah. artists that I just mentioned. Uh, but there, I think there, there is a higher level to it where maybe some of those consumers graduate to the point where they want to get educated on mm-hmm. exactly what is adorning their T-shirt or their sweater or whatever. So it's not it's not necessarily like, okay, there are exit through the gift shop brands and then there are brands of a higher order that tend to be like luxury goods only. I think there's, I think there's, a conversa- there's always a conversation between products and how they are consumed and how they are perceived as art or not, right? I'm trying to go back to gallery versus museum, Yeah. right? Like, I feel like malls in a way are are galleries. I feel like walking to an Apple store is a high-end gallery sometimes. Um, Restoration hardware, we've been talking about. That's that's definitely a gallery, right? Um, And like, what is the museum? Is the museum the home? Is the museum someone's collection? Is it, you know... So it, it's difficult to think of like an exact analog, but I do I do see where you're coming from. Where you know you you open up a closet for someone who you might not even consider yourself a collector, but you can open a closet and say, "This is why I will never sell this piece." Mm-hmm. There is an intrinsic value there. There's also a story behind it. Yes, there's secondary market value, but I'll never I'll never sell it. But on the flip side of that, I think there is an increasing uh, consciousness yeah. on the consumer from a consumer perspective that, and it's not just durable goods, but what is the value that uh, this might have after I'm done with it? I think I'm, I'm still, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm taking your words uh, no. word for word, but um, you know, I, I do think about that when I'm purchasing something, it's almost a binary, like this will go to zero eventually. And I'm totally fine with that. But everything that is not disposable um, to me needs to have a secondary market value. Even if I end up not selling it, just for the the peace of mind that it's almost like a litmus test of is this thing actually valuable or is there any thought or was there craftsmanship or was there or even the purpose of the uh, of, of the brand founders is it injected in this item and if it's not then that'll go to zero as well and and I, I might want to explore something that's a bit more premium so that mm. I feel good about using this item in the same way that I might wake up feeling good about investing in a piece of art that is on my wall, right? So that's a certain kind of like satisfaction. I think we're seeing that play out in ways that we don't even consider perhaps part of this conversation. So we woke up to the news that Love Island actually walked away from its fast fashion partnerships and now they're exclusively partnering with eBay. And to me, that is such a leading indicator first of a franchise that I didn't consider to be particularly moralistic having a point of view on at least how the world can continue to evolve around sustainability. But secondarily, that's such a signal that the people who are watching that show are going to be introduced to the idea of passing on or finding a second life for the things that you own. So hopefully, let's imagine 20 years down the road, maybe the second and third order effects are people think more like Michael, which is I need to buy something to wear because I have to be clothed. 
is this something that when I don't want it anymore, I don't throw it away, but instead I put it up on eBay if eBay still exists. Like if we actually consider what the fuller life cycle of something could be. So this is why I think we found it so hard to move away from luxury when we talk about romanticizing brands, because just take it back to basics. I was thinking about kitchen utensils, mm-hmm. kitchen um, appliances, right? We can all think of a number of brands where we think they basically build in obsolescence. Mm. And so that in in and of itself mm-hmm. devalues the brand. Whereas we think of some kitchen appliance brands that you buy once, once for a ever. lifetime yeah. and you're prepared to spend a little bit more on it. Mm-hmm. So I think we must, to keep it real as it were, think about the different types of consumers there are and the different amounts of disposable income that they have and where in their own value prop in their mind they want to see their money best spent so they're being patrons Mm. in that sense as well from an artistic standpoint Mm. but I do think that it this is a clarion call if I'm sort of reflecting on the conversation so far for a brand to definitely think about um, the innovation, the product development, the product design from a point of view of it being sustainable um, and that's that sustainability can actually elevate it to art. My favourite retail gallery to walk into recently is um, The Real Real. You walk in and, and, and you're surrounded by uh, products that have aged well and retained value. And it's great to like pick up a piece from a decade ago and you get to hold it and touch it, investigate it. And it's like, well, this is a quality product. It almost defies the conventional expectation that you go into any other retail store where like I'm buying a commodity product and it'll eventually like be worth nothing. But I'm fine with that because I'm buying it for functional utility, whatever. You walk into a store like The Real Real, which is very curated, Right. And it's only full of used, gently used, um, you know, sometimes cherished heirloom products that just so happen to be finding life in the secondary market. And it's a great reminder of the fact that, you know, some things you purchase for a lifetime or as heirloom objects. Um, Maybe that's not the vast majority of things that we consume, but there is a place and maybe, maybe, maybe for the past 10 or 15 years, we've kind of lost that mm-hmm. with the rise of things like fast fashion, mm-hmm. uh, with the rise of, you know, otherwise disposable objects. Um, and maybe through the pandemic, because there's been such a su- supply chain shortage of, you know, even high-end goods that um, people are, are re-exploring, you know, secondhand. Um, I think there's something to it. And yeah. I, I'm hoping there's something to it. Yeah. Because it can only do good for, 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 for the world and the environment and counterbalance um, I don't know the, if we're allowed to call it the, the Sheehan effect yeah. of, yeah. of, of yeah. the extreme other end of, of what our conversation has been. I will say the thing that I think of when I think of museum, and this is probably not the right connotation, but a good number of artists that are in museum, their works persist well beyond their natural life. And it's durable. I cannot say that that's going to be the case for most consumer goods that have been created over the last 15 years. They will not persist. They aren't durable. The idea of them will, though. And I I think that's where, when we look back at this era, I believe our our own romanticism of this whole, you know, explosion of brand and direct-to-consumer and uh, the personification of brand and the fetishization of the entrepreneur, it's all actually going to be wrapped up in the fact of 
wow, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah. that an era? Wasn't that, that yeah. was so interesting. Like, that's the hallmark is that there was infinite choice. And yet at the end of the day, we chose for just a few, fewer better things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if there are any brands or retailers listening to this, watching us, that they should they should be designing with art in mind. They mm-hmm. should be thinking, regardless of how utilitarian or functional, whatever it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sell, that... I kind of want to see it in a museum one day. Mm. I think that would be a good takeaway for me because, you know, kitchen ma- kitchen aids, mm. the iMac, all of these, the Coca-Cola bottle, all of these have become icons. And I think that that in and of itself is something worth aspiring to. Ode on a Grecian Urn by John Keats. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, Thou foster child of silence and slow time, what mad pursuit, what struggle to escape, what pipes and timbrels, what wild ecstasy. The beauty of Keats's poem is his realization that the lovers were forever captured in pigment and plaster just before their coming together. Or as it has been said, the almost of the lovers embraces the beauty not the embrace itself. What if the beauty of the direct-to-consumer era was the almost of owning the product? The adding the product to the cart? Its rating on thing testing? The quote tweets the RTs? The abandoned cart email and the private Slack praise? But did you buy the product? No. Because the new romanticism is in the almost of ownership, not the ownership itself. From the Visions Report. The Visions Podcast is brought to you by Future Commerce. You can find more episodes of this podcast and all Future Commerce properties at futurecommerce.fm. Download our 100-page companion guide on cultural and consumer trends by visiting visions.report. That's visions.report. <laughs>